And please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 6. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. Or if you're joining us online, there should be a link there on our site or on the site hosting the sermon um, for you to download the insert and notes. This morning, we're going to take a second look at Paul's instruction to slaves, servants, bond servants. Last week, we spent the majority of our time just considering the foundational issue. What is the Bible's relationship with slavery? So often, that's brought up as sort of the Achilles heel of our faith. And I think before we can look at Paul's instructions, we need to grasp that. This morning, we're going to move past that and and look at the majority of the instructions. We only got to the first instruction last week um, to, to slaves, to servants. This morning, we're going to look at all of it. I'd like to begin by reading the entire section, including Paul's instruction to masters, because it turns back, they relate. All of these three sections um, are that way. And so we're going to read Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. We'll have a word of prayer, and we will dive in. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that. He who is both their master and yours is in heaven, yet there is no partiality with him. Lord God, we confess that we are your slaves, that you have purchased us, you have redeemed us, we are yours. We also confess, Lord, that so often we live and act and think of ourselves as free agents, Lord, give us the mindset of servants, the mindset of slaves. Give us the understanding that all of us have a master. Lord, give us ears to hear your instructions for us as we serve, as we obey our earthly masters, that we might do it well. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we looked at the issue of the Bible and slavery. This week, I want to consider this passage, and suggests it does have great relevance for us. Uh, No one here, I trust, is the slave of any earthly master. And so you may be tempted to think, well, how does this relate to me? I want to suggest to you that by the argument of the greater to the lesser, if Paul's instructions, God's instructions to slaves who are in the more pitiable condition, the weaker condition, the more difficult condition are true, then to whatever degree you or I are under the authority of others, especially those we work for, to to whatever degree you and I are are indentured, we've given our word, we are legitimately under authority, we we are beholding to someone. And I think, to varying levels of degree in all of our employment, that is the case, that that then holds true or even more true for us. So, So to say that again, if Paul can give these instructions about the attitude, the conduct, of slaves to the ones to whom they are under their authority, people they could not escape from that relationship, people who had virtually no recourse in the Roman world, then how much more ought we, who have far greater freedoms, far greater protections, 
model this conduct to the degree that we are under the authority, that we are committed to someone else. If you've agreed to work for someone, if they're paying you, you there's, this, there's an implicit sense which you, you are, by accepting their money, recognizing their authority over you, recognizing your duty to serve them. And so, even though none of us are earthly slaves with earthly masters, most of us, all those of us who, who have remunerative employment, I think, qualify for this. Um, so that's how I would suggest we move through. Now, we saw last week the primary command is to obey. We see that in verse 5. Bond servants, ESV translates a word I think would be far better rendered slaves because these people have masters in verse 9. And the doulos, kurios relationship is pretty clear. Um, but they, they translate it, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So the command we looked at last week is to obey, to do the will of another. This week, we're going to look at the manner of obedience and the rationale of obedience. How is that obedience to be conducted and why? Okay? So we're going to look at the manner of obedience in verses 6 through 7. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Now I want you to notice right off the bat, what we've got is a not this, but this. And this is a pattern and a paradigm Paul introduced back in chapter 4. Turn back to Ephesians 4. As he describes the pattern of spiritual growth and change, Look at chapter 4, verse 20. This is not the way you learned Christ. I'm assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in truth, righteousness, holiness. So Paul says, Change and growth involves putting something off, being renewed, and putting something on. And then, in the ethical instructions he gives right after, as we see him put that into practice. Look at 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For you are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Verse 27, I mean 28. Let the thief no longer steal, put off, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so one of the other things we get from this is not just a not this, but this, but relationships. Things are antithetical. We saw that with the thief, right? Let the thief no longer steal. Let him rather do honest work with his own hands. That, That gives us some insight into why a thief might steal. Laziness, a lack of diligence with work. And so it's not arbitrary, the not this, but this, but they relate to each other. They become antithetical. They're opposites. And from that, we can then draw more conclusions about their relationship. And so after giving the command to obey in verse 5, we get a not this way, but this way. And we're going to see that same pairing antithesis. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart Rendering service with a good will is to the Lord and not to man. So the way I want to suggest we work through this is, is five concepts. First, motive. Motive. And it's a negative motive. This is the wrong motive. Not 
by way of eye service as people pleasers. As far as we can tell, Paul coined these terms, quite possibly. He coined them, made them up. They occur here and they occur in an identical context in Colossians, and pretty much that's it. But I think his words are pretty clear. Not by way of eye service, not as people pleasers. And I think we understand what this is like. You're, you're primarily working, looking at your employer, worried about what he thinks. What that means you're not doing is worrying about the quality of your work in general. You, you care about the quality of your work as it relates to what he sees, what he thinks. You're doing your work as a people pleaser, fundamentally not concerned about doing your work diligently as unto the Lord or well, but fundamentally worried about what he or she, I suppose, will think of your work. It means that when they're watching, you have a different standard than when they're present. It means that all of your concerns and approach to work is fundamentally built around a concern for what they will think. And we're not to work and serve our earthly masters that way. So point one, such service is only done to impress. Such service is only done to impress. In Luke 12, 37, Jesus gives a parable about a servant whose master goes away. And some servants, seeing that he's gone, think he'll be a while before he comes back. I don't need to get about my work till he gets back. That's the eye service. He's not watching, so it's a different standard. But the servant who is actually diligent, Jesus says, blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. So the, the sole motive of such eye service and people-pleasing is purely to impress, to make a good impression. You're working primarily to, to uh, manipulate or, or affect what your employer thinks of you. Now, there's nothing wrong in having a healthy concern and interest in what your employer thinks. In fact, it's right. Are you pleased with the work I'm doing? Are you displeased with the work I'm doing? But if that's your sole and ultimate goal, you will order everything else underneath it, and you will be guilty of hypocrisy. That's the next point. Such a motive is fundamentally hypocritical. It is fundamentally hypocritical. And the, and the picture of a hypocrite, hypocrite, it's a Greek term, means to speak from under a mask. In Roman drama, you'd wear the mask. And if you had the happy role, you put the happy mask on. If you had the sad role, you put the sad mask on. And the reality was the face you wore under the mask could be very different from the mask you wore on the outside. It became a metaphor to appear to be one thing and inwardly be another. I think we, we all get the idea. And of course, if your main concern is to curry favor, your main concern is to impress, and if you then have a different standard and different mode of conduct when your employer is gone, you are absolutely a hypocrite. You're one way when he's present, one way when he's watching, one way when he's not. It's hypocrisy. Proverbs warn about this type of hypocrisy, not in work, but just the duplicity of human nature, our capacity to want to appear to be one thing when inwardly being something else. Proverbs 23, 6 through 8. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. He will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Or Jesus 
complains of the worthlessness of Israel's religion in his day and his, Israel's worship. He says in Matthew 15, 8, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And another indication that that's what's tied up in eye service is precisely because in the end of verse 6, the positive put on is from the heart or sincerely coming from the very depths of you. So whatever this eye service is, it's not really obedience and service. It's coming up, welling up from your heart. It's something you put on. It's a show. And it can be a great temptation for us to do this. This is not how we're to work. It's not how we're to serve our earthly masters. We're not to act one way when they're watching, one way when they're not. That's what is wrong. Point three, another reason this is corrupt, is ultimately then it's rooted in a desire to do little, to work little. I think the other notion here is I want to do as little as I have to do to impress my boss. Because there's a very real sense in which you say, I want to impress my boss by being diligent. I want to be the best worker he's got. I want to do the best job anyone's ever done in my position. And you seek your employer's pleasure that way. I think that's fine. I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with that. But what we're seeing here that's not sincere, it's not genuine, is I want my employer to think I'm passionate and excited when they're around. But it's not coming from within me. Because I want to reserve myself the right to slack off when they're not watching. Jesus tells the parable a little later in Luke 12 of the uh, servant who says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to, begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. Well, what's he thinking? Okay, I've got jobs to do. I'll delay until the last possible minute to do it and I'll take my ease right now. So such eye service and people-pleasing only is designed to impress. It's fundamentally hypocritical. And it's rooted in the desire of sloth and to work as little as possible. And I want you to notice the radical contrast of how we are to work. We're not to work as people pleasers, not to work by eye service, but as slaves of Christ or bond servants of Christ. So now he brings in the notion of identity, identity, but as slaves of Christ. And this is what I get when I say that to some degree we, we're, that these instructions apply to all of us because all of us are slaves. All of us are slaves of either sin and Satan or God and Christ and righteousness. In that sense, there are no free agents. And the New Testament is emphatic on this point. It's, it's not an identity you hear very often. You, know, you hear, I am great, I am blessed. I am remarkable. I'm a slave, bought with a price, redeemed from the slave market of sin. And I'm an adopted son, and I'm an heir. These are all true. But a very common New Testament identity for Christians is we are slaves because we are under a sovereign will. We are not our own because we were bought with a price. These things are true of us, and it's true of our identity. And so the way to fight this eye service is recognize who your true master is. Recognize you have a master, first off. That might be a paradigm shift for many of us. You're a slave. You have a master. So stop looking and stop being ultimately concerned with what your earthly master thinks and raise your sight a little higher. 
as slaves of Christ. I'll give you one passage, 1 Corinthians 7, 21 and 22. Um, For he was called in the Lord as a bondservant, as a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become the slaves of men. Paul, in many of his letters, identifies himself, Paul, slave of Christ. This is, again, one of the reasons why getting these, these metaphors, being able to amen all the rich biblical metaphors of our identity. We are beloved children. We're heirs. We're future kings. We're to judge angels. Amen, amen, amen. We're slaves. Slaves of God and Christ. Amen to that as well. Because this identity is what is going to help combat the temptation to be a people pleaser. So that's our identity. Now let's get to mindset. And I know there's some overlap in my terms of mindset. So not as eye service, not as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Doing the will of God from the heart. Now that phrase, the will of God, if you've been with me in Ephesians, should make you perk up. Huh, that's not the first time Paul has mentioned that. Paul is using this to tie back into a bigger theme. Turn back to chapter 1. If you'll remember, I should point out to you some of the things Paul is connected to the will of God. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So, first blank here. God's will has saved you. It was the accomplishment of God's will that predestined us for salvation. Verse 9. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ Jesus because God's will also is that Christ would come, suffer, die on the cross for our sins as our substitute, received by faith, and that he will come again and be glorified. This is God's will. We've been caught up in God's will. And being caught up in God's will, you were saved You were redeemed. God's will is also to free us from another will. Look at chapter 2. Speaking of our former state, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the ESV has desires, but it's the same word. Desires are the will of the body and the mind. So we were slaves to a foreign will, our own passions, our own bodies, and God freed us from that will. Then in chapter 5, the last time it showed up was actually the introduction to this section. Remember in chapter 5, we got, we we're working through our walks, the five walks And the fifth walk, 515, look carefully then how you walk. And we get these three contrasts. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, second contrast, but understand what the will of the Lord is. See, Paul's tying this instruction to slaves and to us back to that header. Because the walk of wisdom... The walk of the Spirit is the walk of the will of God. Those are the three contrasts. The first contrast is wisdom, not as unwise, but as wise. Second, not as foolish, but knowing the will of the Lord. Third, 
not in drunkenness, but being filled with the Spirit. So we're walking wisely. We're walking in the will of God. We're walking, being filled with the Spirit. And then coming out of that, he gives the description of what type of fruit that'll bear. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that, of course, then becomes the header, the transition into the household code. These various relationships, these various submissions. And so he's tying this back in. This is wisdom. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That's why I've titled Spirit-filled slaves of Christ. This is what the evidence of the Spirit for people with masters looks like. And what's going to fight God's will is your concern to impress your boss as your highest goal. What will help you is your identity as a slave of Christ and then carrying out God's will with a sincere heart. This is God's will. God has a will for how we work. One of the truths of the Reformation was the holiness of all of life. Next week, we're going to pause our study of Ephesians and the last Sunday of October, Reformation Sunday, we're going to sing some great Reformation hymns and we're going to look at um, a glorious truth of the Reformation next week, the Reformation and the assurance of salvation. But one of the other things the Reformation did uh, in Europe and in England was to break down this notion of sacred and secular, holy and common. You know, God has a will for how you work, whatever your job is, which means you can do your work to the glory of God. Your work is holy, whatever it is. So God's will saved us, by the way, your second blank, and is sanctifying us. Because the will that we just looked at in 5.17 is about our ongoing walk, our ongoing growth in grace. So in God's will we were chosen. In God's will Christ was sent forth. In God's will we were saved. We were freed from the will of another. And now we're urged to walk knowing the will of the Lord. Well, if you're an employee... What's God's will? It's here that you work as a slave of Christ, carrying out God's will, not as a people pleaser. And second, this should be obvious, but we've got to stress this. God's will, and we see this in the entire code, is that we obey earthly authorities. We obey earthly authorities. The structures and authorities in place on earth, God's will apart from when those authorities command us to sin, is that we obey them. Keep, keep your finger here and turn over to 1 Peter. And, and keep in mark in 1 Peter, because we'll probably turn back here once or twice. I know the uh, Monday morning women's Bible study is going through 1 Peter, but... Look at verse 13, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse... I'll go back to actually to verse 11. He introduces the section in 11, and then... okay. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And now we shift into this, your conduct in the world. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So understand, Peter understands and expects conflict in the world. They're going to slander us. So he's picturing a hostile work environment. 
And in that context, he says, verse 13, be subject, submit, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor supreme, the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves or servant slaves of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Then we move to our first example. Slaves, servants, be subject to your own masters. And then he'll give the example of Jesus' submission. And then chapter 3, terrible chapter break. Likewise, he tells us we're continuing a thought. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And so he's moving through human relationships of authority. And God's will is that in those situations, unless we're called upon to sin, we obey. And we even obey in hostile environments because God is glorified when our good conduct rises up against our accusations of those who would slander us. So when you go to your workplace, when you go to your job, understand God's will is for you, for me, to work as slaves of Christ, to know that his will is for us to submit, not to resist, not to kick back against our authorities, even when our environment's hostile. That's his will. God's will is that we obey earthly authorities. <coughs> Next, look at our attitude. Rendering service with a good will. Your service with a smile. This is, again, about coming authentically from our heart, genuinely coming from us, because this is really coming out, because it's not a put-on show, because it's not something we do in a smile that comes in our face when our boss walks in the room. We're sort of grumbling and, oh, hello there. It's, it's authentic. It's real. Our attitude, rendering service with good will. And again, your identity in this, seeing yourself as who you are, maybe you've got a, a low-paying, entry-level job, and you think, I'm just the, the checkout cashier, some out-of-the-way store, just a gas station attendant, whatever. And you may think, that's unimportant and grumble. If you recognize God's will is for you to do that heartily, with good service, with a good heart, recognizing that as his slave, this is the work he has for you, should be able to help you do it with a good attitude, rendering service with a good will. And then to sharpen the point even further, we get to the real objective, the real objective pointy as to the Lord and not to man. That, that's going to be the challenge. That's where identity comes back into this. Are we working simply to please man? Are we working simply to get a paycheck? Are we working simply to curry favor with our boss? Or are we working to serve the Lord? Rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. So God cares that we obey our earthly masters. Or God cares that we obey our earthly authorities. He, and he cares how we obey them. Sincerely. Not currying favor. Not trying to impress Doing it as slaves of Christ, whatever your job or workplace environment is. Doing it with the right attitude. Remember, we got back to this with children. Grumbling obedience is disobedience. God wants us to obey, and he wants us to obey with a good attitude. Because we, are, we serve Christ, point one, by serving our earthly masters. We serve Christ... My serving our earthly masters. 
That's very similar logic to the instruction Paul gave to wives, right? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the wife is to see, this is my service and obedience to the Lord. It's the same instruction given to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord or for the Lord's sake. In all these situations of authority, note, it's never, the argument is never, the Lord has put a wise and worthy person over you because of their wisdom and because of their worth. Recognize their worth and their power and honor them. It's always recognize who God is and honor them, which means the person you're submitting to can be a doofus. They can be corrupt. They can be wicked. Daniel, look at Daniel. Daniel is able. Daniel is, by the way, a great example if you want to look through how this works. Because on the one hand, whenever submitting to his authorities would cause him to, to potentially disobey God, Daniel has no problem drawing a line. Yeah, I, I can't eat your delicacies. I can't worship your statue. And yet, he rendered good service to three successive pagan regimes. To Nebuchadnezzar, I believe at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, he becomes a believer, but most of his life before that, he's a wicked, wicked man, and he's rendering good service to him. And then, when his son, Belteshazzar, takes the throne, he serves him. And even is able to rebuke him. Remember when he has that drunken feast and the hand writes on the wall and he tells him. And then he survives that regime. So when the Medo-Persians take them over, he's working for Darius. Now this is a valuable man. If, if you're sacking the previous ruler, wouldn't you sort of default to wonder whether his aides have loyalties elsewhere? And yet Daniel not only survives it, but Darius is rooting for him and he throws him in the lion's den. How valuable, how faithful was Daniel's service to those three regimes? Great. And he never compromised. He never worshipped their gods. He never bowed down. And yet he gave good, valuable service to all three of those regimes. I think because he understood that his work was being presented to God. I think that's the case. We serve Christ by serving our earthly masters. If you think that somehow your responsibility to honor and submit and obey is tied to the wisdom, the worth, or the righteousness of your earthly rulers, you're going to have a hard time of it. And you are going to be a rebellious and stiff-necked person. Because newsflash, they're all broken, sinful people. So children, if, if you think your obligation to honor and obey your parents is tied to their honor, their worth, their value, you're going to have tons of it. My kids would have excuses every day to disobey if it was tied to my conduct. If, if wives, if you think somehow your, your husband's sin, weakness, folly, excuses the command here, then again, no wife would ever listen to her husband. Husbands, if you think your wife's submission is somehow the, the contingent or the, the basis of the rationale of your serving her, you're never going to serve her. And on it goes. The scripture always ties the command for us to honor and obey 
those that God has put in our life to honor and obey to who God is. And because his character never changes, because he is worthy, because we've been bought, then we obey those that he gives us to obey. We serve Christ by serving our earthly masters. Point two, we must seek his pleasure and not man's. And, and this is really, if you want to boil it down very simply, here it is. Serving, doing the will of the Lord as to the Lord and not to man. It's rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. And at the end of the day, who are you trying to please? Man or the Lord? Which, by the way, suggests you're probably not going to be able to do both. And we can set our sights low, and we can just want to get ahead, and just want to curry favor, and just want to please our earthly bosses. And understand, if you do that, you're not trying to please the Lord. If that's as high as your sight goes. Because I certainly think if you're working heartily as a slave of Christ, rendering service with goodwill to the Lord, you probably will be one of the best employees your, your employer has. It's likely you'll be noticed for that, like Daniel was. But what is your true goal? What's your true motive? Is it coming from the, the, your heart, or is it a put-on act that you have? These are the types of things that matter. And the Bible warns us again and again, the fear of man brings a snare. It ensnares, it traps us. When Saul spared Agag and made a statue of himself and spared the best animals, what's his excuse given when Samuel confronts him? First Samuel 15, 24, Samuel sa Saul says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people. Saul wanted to make the people happy. And when people go to war, they're happy when they come back with spoils of war. They wouldn't have been happy if all the best animals were killed. And Saul wanted the people to be happy. Because as a king, you feel a little more secure when your people are happy than when they're grumbling. So Saul let them keep the best animals. It was all to worship the Lord, of course. But we learn that the fear of man is in direct opposition to the fear of the Lord. I want to use a metaphor here trying to tie this in. I want to imagine that you were, all of us, we, were, were going to do a play. We're going to do a piece of theater. And... Our master is the one handing out the roles. What, what makes the point here is that God assigns us roles, but because he's our master, and we see that connection, it doesn't matter what role he assigns us. The, the, the Lord may assign you the role of the rich man in the play, the role of the poor man in the play, the role of the slave in the play. And what matters is you take that role and you do it diligently. And you and I both know that the rich man isn't always the most important person in the story. The poor man sometimes is the important person in the story. And the story God's trying to tell isn't to be measured by human values. Remember, not many wise, not many noble, not many powerful. And so God says, here, you're mine. I've bought you. I've adopted you. I have these promises for you. And now because of who I am, go serve these broken, foolish people. It pleases me. And you serve with good conduct and a good heart and a good will as my slaves. It pleases me when they see that. And that mindset and that identity, I think, can help us do this. You, you've got to get your eyes higher than the horizon, higher than the earth. Because if you're looking at your employers, they're broken, sinful people. They will give you 
an unending list of excuses to grumble, to kick back, to complain. But if you're seeking his pleasure, you want to seek his pleasure and not man's. And your eyes are always lifting up. What does God think of how I'm working today? Is the Lord pleased with my morning's work today? Those are good questions to ask yourself. You struggle with this. You can just have a sort of prayer time at lunch and just review. Lord, how have I done today so far? That might be a little convicting though, right? Let's move then into the rationale for obedience. The rationale for obedience. And this is striking. The rationale for a slave's obedience is the same rationale the masters are given. Notice in both, knowing. Verse 8, knowing. You've got to know something. And then in verse 9, he's going to give the master's instructions, and he's going to give them the same rationale, knowing something. And so I want to pause and talk about the significance of thinking and knowing things and doing things. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is, this is critical. Because I know these are challenging instructions. I know these are difficult things to carry out. It's easy to say, and I know firsthand how hard it can be to maintain that mindset to remember that I'm a slave. It is so, it comes so naturally to act like a free agent. And so Paul understands the way humans work. He understands the relationship between thinking and doing and feeling. And uh, most of us, I'm guessing, would say, okay, I'll do that as soon as the Lord makes me feel like I want to do it. It's not the way things generally work. So I want you to know it's Paul's warfare, okay? Um, starting in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So, look at verse 5 and see if you can identify the sphere in which Paul's warfare takes place. It's not fleshly warfare. It's not the Crusades. What is it? It's a warfare where we destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. The sphere of Paul's warfare is the sphere of the mind. It has to do with arguments, opinions, knowledge, and thoughts that he wants to take captive. Paul's warfare is at the root issue what we think, what we believe. I was talking with somebody about this earlier this week, but all of us in our circumstances have to interpret, make sense of, think about our situation, and then based upon that interpretation, based upon what we're thinking, we will act. Based upon what we're thinking, our, our feelings will come out, our emotions will show. Um, C.S. Lewis offers this helpful example. I'll show, I'll show what I mean. The connection between interpreting, thinking, and grumbling, say. Imagine two different people have to spend a week in a dirty smelly, infested hotel room. Uh, the, the sheets aren't clean. It's just a mattress on the floor. Um, it's cold. It smells of mildew. So you've got this hotel room. Imagine the, the different experiences the two would have. Because in the first situation, you've got somebody who thought they had reserved a five-star hotel with all the benefits, room service. Imagine how they might spend their week. Imagine how that thinking 
would affect their emotional response and their feelings and their attitude. Imagine another person got, got smuggled out of a prison camp, out of Auschwitz, and they were told, you have to stay here for a week, and after a week we're going to sneak you out of the country. Do you think those two people, based on how they interpreted the exact same experience, might have different feelings, outlooks, attitudes? What you think of your situation, how you interpret it, what you understand it to be, what you expected, what you think you deserve, all those things are the bedrock for the words that will come out of your mouth, the emotions that will rise up in your heart. If you think your obligation to serve someone is due to their honor, their worth, then when you see them act in dishonorable and unworthy ways, what will happen? Your heart will say to you, don't listen to him. He's a fool. If you say, I'm a slave of the risen living God and his, he is pleased when my good conduct is seen in the light of mistreatment. This is what he has for me. This is what pleases him who loved me and died for me. Maybe our attitude would be different. We're seeking his pleasure, not man's. His pleasure is not man's. And the rationale that Paul gives us is to know something because, here's your blank, how we think determines how we will act. How we think determines how we will act. Spiritual warfare is about thought and thinking. And so Paul basically is saying, it's important, we need to be knowing something if we're going to do this. Well, what is it we need to know? Well, we must... Before we can get to that, we must endeavor then to remember what is true. We must endeavor to remember what is true. If this is something you struggle with, I struggle with this. Remind yourself of this. I remember my wife and I would go on prayer walks during the end of her first pregnancy when we were living in Martinsville. We'd walk up on the bike trail. It was snowing. Well, there'd be snow on the ground. Abner was born in January. And we'd go out in the morning and we'd just remind ourselves Probably the most helpful thing in my prayer life in the morning is to confess and remind myself, I am a slave. My time is not my own. I, I have another's will to accomplish. I've got to remember. I've got to be thinking rightly. Because if I come at my day thinking I'm sovereign and I'm in charge, I'm going to have a whole different spectrum of emotions and attitudes and things I want to do. But if I can keep in mind, if I can fight to remember who I truly am, what my state truly is, then maybe I'll be able to act rightly. Correspondingly, when we sin, we are believing a lie. When we sin, we are believing a lie. Again, if you struggle with diligence at work, understand that in those moments of sloth, carelessness, you're believing something that's not true. And the reason I want to point this out is we can try to pluck the same bad fruit off the same bad tree again and again. Oh, man, I was... I was wasting time on Facebook at work again. 20th time. I'd encourage you to go a little deeper. What, what were you thinking in that moment? What you're probably thinking is what my boss doesn't know won't hurt him. What I was probably thinking was, I deserve this. Some lie you're believing that we've got to start identifying and ripping up out of our hearts. Paul goes after thinking. We've got to keep something in mind. We've got to know something. The implications of that, of course, are because how you think will determine how you act. 
And spiritual warfare is about remembering. I mean, how often do you see in Deuteronomy, I write these things to remind you. Peter, I write these things to remind you. Our, our greatest struggle in temptation is to remember truth. Bonhoeffer said the power of sin is so often with God's children. Not the power to make us raise our fist at God, but simply the power to make us forget. And so Paul connects the commands he's given with something we are to know. And I'm just highlighting that because of the central role knowing takes here and then again in verse 9. Knowing, you got to know something. you got to keep something in your mind. What is it we're to know? Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. That's what you've got to know. That's encouraging. It's not a threat. It's a promise. Keep in mind, know, be aware, be thinking that that God is going to repay the good you do. I want to draw four implications from this. First, the Lord sees your good conduct. He cares. I don't care how menial your work is. I don't care how unimportant you think it is in the scale of things. God sees and he cares. He has to if he's going to repay you, right? And you can flip that around as conviction. He sees and he knows, and so when you're slacking off, he sees and knows that too, but put it positively. He cares, not just about big things in life, not just big events in life. He cares about the small as well. He sees. Point two, the Lord will reward your good conduct. All of it. Not just for great big things, leading that person to the Lord, but little things. That little bit of faithfulness there, that little bit of diligence there. He will repay. He will repay. Luke 14, 14. Jesus says, you will be blessed for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And here's what's remarkable. You're you're getting repaid eternal dividends, eternal rewards for temporal action. I've used this analogy before, but it's like taking monopoly money and trading it in for real money. You take this, this life that's just it's a vapor, it's gone. And the Lord will repay you with eternal reward for your faithfulness, your diligence here and now for a limited time span. It's, it's remarkable. And Christ puts this out in front of us. Rejoice, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And again, if you could keep these things in mind, if you could think in your frustrating work environment with your unworthy, stupid boss, God's going to repay me for eternity in the resurrection. I can, I can honor him. I can obey him. I can do it with a good attitude. I think that might make it easier. If we could bring those things to mind. Third, the Lord cares about all your conduct. The Lord cares about all your conduct. And again, we got to resist the temptation to break our lives in the sacred and the secular. There's the holy things God cares about and the other things he doesn't really care as much about. We're to glorify God in our eating and drinking, which means you can dishonor God in your eating and drinking. Simply your breakfast this morning ought to be worship. It can be offered to the Lord. The Lord cares about how a slave serves his master, digging a ditch. He cares. He can be pleased by that or he can be displeased by that. He can reward that or not. And Jesus, again, we have his word that tells us that 
in Luke 16, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. God understands that we have an integrity to us. If you can't be faithful with little things, you won't be faithful with big things. Don't kid yourself. Don't tell yourself, I'll, I'll cut corners on small things, but when the big things come, I'll be faithful. No, you won't. Or in Matthew twelve thirty six, that should be the correct reference. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. So, so get the breadth of this. And also get how Paul's broadening this out to not just slaves, but everyone. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, wives, husbands, children, freemen, he will receive back from the Lord. This is a promise for all of us. Whether he is a bondservant or whether he is freed. For last point, and we'll sing our final song. The Lord shows no partiality. The Lord shows no partiality. Paul says that explicitly in verse 9. Look at the end of verse 9. There is no partiality with him. Again, I think it can be helpful using the metaphor of us putting on a play. Um, the director of the play, what he wants of his actors, is they're faithful with their lines and their assigned part and role. And as he evaluates the faithfulness of his actors, he's not concerned with who played the rich man, who played the poor man, who made the great man, who played the despised man. He cares about who is faithful. He's not impressed. I mean, if, if you were born a master and a lord, what did you have that you not received? He gave that to you. He's not impressed by what he gave to you. And if the Lord put you in a lowly circumstance, he doesn't look down on you and despise you because you're not esteemed much in the eyes of men. This is incredibly freeing for the slaves in Ephesus. It makes no difference. This, This pattern of repayment, he doesn't have one standard for freemen and one standard for slaves, one standard for lords and one standard for peasants. There's no partiality. He's assigned us our roles. He's assigned us our marching orders. He's given us ways. He commands us to relate to those we're in relationship with within our households. And what he cares about is our faithfulness. What he cares about is that we understand we are his. We're bought. We're his slaves. We accept that. We don't kick against that. And then we render our service to him to them. And he puts this great carrot in front of us. Understand you will be repaid. Every piece of good that you do. That's what the text says. Knowing that whatever, that's the breath, anything, anyone does, that's everyone, slaves, free, husbands, wives, children, kings, queens, peasants, doesn't matter. Whatever anyone does, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this you'll receive back from the Lord. Take that promise. Hold on to it. And when you're tempted to grumble and complain because of the meniality of your work or because of the unworthiness of your boss, your authority, remember your identity as Christ's slave. Remember the promise of reward and be faithful. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.